Chapter One of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter One. How the Black Sheep Came Forth from the Fold. The great bell of Bewley was ringing. Far away through the forest might be heard its musical clangour and swell. Peat-cutters on Blackdown, and fishers upon the X heard the distant throbbing, rising and falling upon the sultry summer air. It was a common sound in those parts, as common as the chatter of the jays and the booming of the bittern. Yet the fishers and the peasants raised their heads and looked questions at each other, for the Angelus had already gone and Vespers was still far off. Why should the great bell of Bewley toll, when the shadows were neither short nor long? All round the abbey the monks were trooping in. Under the long green-paved avenues of gnarled oaks and of lichened beeches, the white-robed brothers gathered to the sound. From the vineyard and the vine-press, from the bouvery or ox-farm, from the marl-pits and sultans, even from the distant ironworks of Soli and the outlying grange of St. Leonard's, they had all turned their steps homewards. It had been no sudden call. A swift messenger had, the night before, sped round to the outlying dependencies of the abbey, and had left the summons for every monk to be back in the cloisters by the third hour after noontide. So urgent a message had not been issued within the memory of the old lay-brother Athanasius, who had cleaned the abbey knocker since the year after the battle of Bannockburn. A stranger who knew nothing either of the abbey or of its immense resources might have gathered from the appearance of the brothers some conception of the varied duties which they were called upon to perform, and of the busy, widespread life which centred in the old monastery. As they swept gravely in, by twos and by threes, with bended heads and muttering lips, there were few who did not bear upon them some signs of their daily toil. Here were two with wrists and sleeves, all spotted with the ruddy grape-juice. There again was a bearded brother, with a broad-headed axe, and a bundle of faggots upon his shoulders, while beside him walked another, with the shears under his arm, and the white wool still clinging to his whiter gown. A long straggling troop bore spades and mattocks, while the two rearmost of all, staggered along under a huge basket of fresh-caught carp, for the morrow was Friday, and there were fifty platters to be filled, and as many sturdy trenchermen behind them. Of all the throng there was scarce one who was not labour-stained and weary, for Abbot Berghersh was a hard man to himself and to others. Meanwhile, in the broad and lofty chamber set apart for occasions of import, the abbot himself was pacing impatiently backwards and forwards, with his long, white, nervous hands clasped in front of him. His thin, thought-worn features and sunken, haggard cheeks bespoke one who had indeed beaten down that inner foe whom every man must face, but had, none the less, suffered sorely in the contest. In crushing his passions he had well-nigh crushed himself. Yet, frail as was his person, there gleamed out ever and anon from under his drooping brows a flash of fierce energy, 
which recalled to men's minds that he came of a fighting stock, and that even now his twin brother, Sir Bartholomew Berghersh, was one of the most famous of those stern warriors who had planted the cross of St. George before the gates of Paris. With lips compressed and clouded brow, he strode up and down the oaken floor, the very genius and impersonation of asceticism, while the great bell still thundered and clanged above his head. At last the uproar died away in three last measured throbs, and ere their echo ceased the abbot struck a small gong which summoned a lay-brother to his presence. "'Have the brethren come?' he asked, in the Anglo-French dialect used in religious houses. "'They are here,' the other answered, with his eyes cast down and his hands crossed upon his chest. "'All? Two and thirty of the seniors, and fifteen of the novices, most holy father. Brother Mark of the Spicarium is sore smitten with a fever, and could not come. He said that it boots not what he said. Fever or no, he should have come at my call. His spirit must be chastened, as must that of many more in this abbey. You yourself, Brother Francis, have twice raised your voice, so it hath come to my ears, when the reader in the refectory hath been dealing with the lives of God's most blessed saints. What hast thou to say? The lay-brother stood, meek, and silent, with his arms still crossed in front of him. <clears throat> One thousand aves and as many credos, said standing with arms outstretched before the shrine of the Virgin, may help thee to remember that the Creator hath given us two ears, and but one mouth, as a token that there is twice the work for the one as for the other. <sighs> Where is the master of the novices? He is without, most holy father. Send him hither. The sandaled feet clattered upon the wooden floor, and the iron-bound door creaked upon its hinges. In a few moments it opened again to admit a short, square monk, with a heavy, composed face and an authoritative manner. "'You have sent for me, Holy Father.' "'Yes, Brother Jerome. I wish that this matter be disposed of with as little scandal as may be, and yet it is needful that the example should be a public one.' The abbot spoke in Latin now, as a language which was more fitted by its age and solemnity to convey the thoughts of two high dignitaries of the order. "'It would, perchance, be best that the novices be not admitted,' suggested the master. This mention of a woman may turn their minds from their pious meditations to worldly and evil thoughts. Woman! Woman! groaned the abbot. Well has the holy Chrysostom termed them radix malorum. From eve downwards what good hath come of any of them? Hmm. Who brings the plaint? It is Brother Ambrose, a holy and devout young man, a light and pattern to every novice. Um, let the matter be brought to an issue, then, according to our old-time monastic habit. Bid the Chancellor and the Sub-Chancellor lead in the brothers, according to age, together with Brother John, the accused, and Brother Ambrose, the accuser. And the novices? Let them bide in the north alley of the cloisters. Stay, bid the Sub-Chancellor send out to them Thomas the Lector, to read unto them from the Gesta Beati Benedicti. It may save them from foolish and pernicious babbling. The abbot was left to himself once more, 
and bent his thin grey face over his illuminated breviary. So he remained until the senior monks filed slowly and sedately into the chamber, seating themselves upon the long oaken benches which lined the wall on either side. At the further end, in two high chairs, as large as that of the abbot, though hardly as elaborately carved, sat the master of the novices and the chancellor. The latter a broad and portly priest, with dark mirthful eyes, and a thick outgrowth of crisp black hair all round his tonsured head. Between them stood a lean, white-faced brother, who appeared to be ill at ease, shifting his feet from side to side, and tapping his chin nervously with the long parchment roll which he held in his hand. The abbot, from his point of vantage, looked down on the two long lines of faces, placid and sun-browned for the most part, with the large bovine eyes and unlined features which told of their easy, unchanging existence. Then he turned his eager, fiery gaze upon the pale-faced monk who faced him. "'This plaint is thine, as I learn, Brother Ambrose,' said he. "'May the holy Benedict, patron of our house, be present this day, and aid us in our findings.' "'How many counts are there?' Three, most holy father,' the brother answered in a low and quavering voice. "'Have you set them forth according to rule?' "'They are here set down, most holy father, upon a cantle of sheepskin.' Let the sheepskin be handed to the Chancellor. Bring in Brother John, and let him hear the plaints which have been urged against him. At this order a lay-brother swung open the door, and two other lay-brothers entered, leading between them a young novice of the order. He was a man of huge stature, dark-eyed and red-headed, with a peculiar half-humorous, half-defiant expression upon his bold, well-marked features. His cowl was thrown back upon his shoulders, and his gown, unfastened at the top, disclosed a round, sinewy neck, ruddy and corded like the bark of the fir. Thick, muscular arms, covered with a reddish down, protruded from the wide sleeves of his habit, while his white shirt, looped up on one side, gave a glimpse of a huge, knotty leg, scarred and torn with the scratches of brambles. With a bow to the abbot, which had in it perhaps more pleasantry than reverence, the novice strode across to the carved prie-dieu which had been set apart for him, and stood, silent and erect, with his hand upon the gold bell, which was used in the private orisons of the abbot's own household. His dark eyes glanced rapidly over the assembly, and finally settled, with a grim and menacing twinkle, upon the face of his accuser. The Chancellor rose and having slowly unrolled the parchment scroll, proceeded to read it out in a thick and pompous voice, while a subdued rustle and movement among the brothers bespoke the interest with which they followed the proceedings. Charges brought upon the second Thursday, after the Feast of the Assumption, in the year of our Lord 1366, against Brother John, formerly known as Hordle John, or John of Hordle, but now a novice in the holy monastic order of the Cistercians read upon the same day at the abbey of beaulieu in the presence of the most reverend abbot burkhersh and of the assembled order the charges against the said brother john are the following namely to wit first that on the above-mentioned feast of the assumption small beer having been served to the novices in the proportion of one quart to each four the said brother john did drain the pot at one draught to the detriment of brother paul brother porphyry 
and Brother Ambrose, who could scarce eat their known meat of salted stock-fish, on account of their exceeding dryness. At this solemn indictment the novice raised his hand and twitched his lip, while even the placid senior brothers glanced across at each other, and coughed to cover their amusement. The abbot alone sat grey and immutable, with a drawn face and a brooding eye. Item that having been told by the master of the novices that he should restrict his food for two days to a single three-pound loaf of bran and beans for the greater honouring and glorifying of St. Monica, mother of the holy Augustine, he was heard by Brother Ambrose and others to say that he wished twenty thousand devils would fly away with the said Monica, mother of the holy Augustine, or any other saint who came between a man and his meat. Item that upon Brother Ambrose reproving him for this blasphemous wish, he did hold the said brother face downwards over the piscatorium, or fish-pond, for the space during which the said brother was able to repeat a pater and four aves for the better fortifying of his soul against impending death. There was a buzz and a murmur among the white-frocked brethren at this grave charge, but the abbot held up his long, quivering hand. "'What, then?' said he. "'Item, that between nones and vespers, on the feast of James the Less, the said brother John was observed upon the Brockenhurst Road, near the spot which is known as Hatchet's Pond, in converse with a person of the other sex, being a maiden of the name of Mary Soley, the daughter of the king's verderer. Item, that after sundry japes and jokes, the said brother John did lift up the said Mary Soley, and did take, carry, and convey her across a stream, to the infinite relish of the devil, and the exceeding detriment of his own soul, which, scandalous and wilful falling away, was witnessed by three members of our order. A dead silence throughout the room, with a rolling of heads and upturning of eyes, bespoke the pious horror of the community. The abbot drew his grey brows low over his fiercely questioning eyes. "'Who can vouch for this thing?' he asked. "'That can I,' answered the accuser. "'So too can Brother Porphyry, who was with me, and Brother Mark of the Spicarium, who hath been so much stirred and inwardly troubled by the sight, that he now lies in a fever through it. "'And the woman?' asked the abbot. "'Did she not break into lamentation and woe "'that a brother should so demean himself?' "'Nay, she smiled sweetly upon him, and thanked him. "'I can vouch it, and so can Brother Porphyry.' "'Canst thou?' cried the abbot, in a high, tempestuous tone. "'Canst thou so? "'Hast forgotten that the five-and-thirtieth rule of the order "'is that in the presence of a woman,' the face should be ever averted, and the eyes cast down? Hast forgot it, I say. If your eyes were upon your sandals, how came ye to see this smile of which ye prate? A week in your cells, false brethren, a week of rye-bread and lentils, with double lords and double matins, may help ye to remember the laws under which ye live. At this sudden outflame of wrath, the two witnesses sank their faces on to their chests, and sat as men crushed. The abbot turned his angry eyes away from them, and bent them upon the accused, 
who met his searching gaze with a firm and composed face. "'What hast thou to say, Brother John, upon these weighty things which are urged against you?' "'Little enough, good father, little enough,' said the novice, speaking English with a broad West Saxon drawl. The brothers, who were English to a man, pricked up their ears at the sound of this homely and yet unfamiliar speech. But the abbot flushed red with anger, and struck his hand upon the oaken arm of his chair. "'What talk is this?' he cried. "'Is this a tongue to be used within the walls of an old and well-famed monastery? But grace and learning have ever gone hand in hand, and when one is lost it is needless to look for the other.' "'I don't know about that,' said Brother John. "'I know only that the words come kindly to my mouth, "'for it was the speech of my father's before me. "'Under your favour I shall either use it now or hold my peace.' "'The abbot patted his foot and nodded his head, "'as one who passes a point but does not forget it. "'For the matter of the ale,' continued Brother John, I had come in hot from the fields, and had scarce got the taste of the thing, before mine eye lit upon the bottom of the pot. It may be, too, that I spoke somewhat shortly concerning the bran and beans, the same being poor of provender, and unfitting for a man of my inches. It's true, also, that I did lay my hands upon this jack-fool of a brother Ambrose, though, as you can see, I did him little scathe. As regards the maid, too, it is true that I did heft her over the stream, she having on her hosen and shoon, whilst I had but my wooden sandals, which could take no hurt from the water. I should have thought shame upon my manhood, as well as my monkhood, if I had held back my hand from her. He glanced around as he spoke, with the half-amused look which he had worn during the whole proceedings. "'There is no need to go further,' said the abbot. "'He has confessed to all.' It only remains for me to portion out the punishment which is due to his evil conduct. He rose, and the two long lines of brothers followed his example, looking sideways with scared faces at the angry prelate. "'John of Hordle!' he thundered. "'You have shown yourself during the two months of your novitiate to be a recreant monk, and one who is unworthy to wear the white garb which is the outer symbol of the spotless spirit.' that address shall therefore be stripped from thee, and thou shalt be cast into the outer world without benefit of clerkship, and without lot or part in the graces and blessings of those who dwell under the care of the blessed Benedict. Thou shalt come back neither to Beaulieu, nor to any of the granges of Beaulieu, and thy name shall be struck off the scrolls of the order. The sentence appeared a terrible one to the older monks who had become so used to the safe and regular life of the abbey that they would have been as helpless as children in the outer world from their pious oasis they looked dreamily out at the desert of life a place full of stormings and strivings comfortless restless and overshadowed by evil the young novice however appeared to have other thoughts for his eyes sparkled and his smile broadened it needed but that to add fresh fuel to the fiery mood of the prelate. So much for thy spiritual punishment, he cried, but it is to thy grosser feelings that we must turn in such natures as thine, and as thou art no longer under the shield of holy church, there is the less difficulty. Ho there! Lay brothers! Francis! Naomi! Joseph! Seize him and bind his arms! Drag him forth, and let the foresters and the porters scourge him from the precincts! 
As these three brothers advanced towards him to carry out the abbot's direction, the smile faded from the novice's face, and he glanced right and left, with his fierce brown eyes, like a bullet abating. Then, with a sudden deep-chested shout, he tore up the heavy oaken predio, and poised it ready to strike, taking two step backwards the while that none might take him at advantage. "'By the black rood of Waltham,' he roared, "'if any knave among you lays a finger-end upon the edge of my gown, I will crush his skull like a filbert.' With his thick, knotted arms, his thundering voice, and his bristle of red hair, there was something so repellent in the man that the three brothers flew back at the very glare of him, and the two rows of white monks strained away from him like poplars in a tempest. The abbot only sprang forward, with shining eyes, but the chancellor and the master hung upon either arm and rested him back out of danger's way. "'He is possessed of a devil!' they shouted. "'Run, Brother Ambrose, Brother Joachim! Call Hugh of the Mill, and Woodman Watt, and Rowell with his arbalast and bolts! Tell them that we are in fear of our lives! Run! Run for the love of the Virgin!' But the novice was a strategist as well as a man of action. Springing forward, he hurled his unwieldy weapon at Brother Ambrose, and, as desk and monk clattered to the floor together, he sprung through the open door, and down the winding stair. Sleepy old Brother Athanasius at the porter's cell had a fleeting vision of twinkling feet and flying skirts, but before he had time to rub his eyes, the recreant had passed the lodge, and was speeding as fast as his sandals could patter along the Lindhurst road. End of chapter 1